Welcome back. This is part four of our exclusive interview with Lisa Michelle Lambert from Massachusetts State Prison. An incarcerated individual at Massachusetts Department of Corrections. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. If you believe this should be a private call, please hang up and follow facility instructions to register this number as a private number. To accept charges and consent to this recorded call, press 1. Thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. Um, I remember that... Um, I was in labor, um, and I had, right before we got to the hospital, to the prison, and I remember I was in labor, um, I had a very, very, very high threshold for pain because of, like, everything that Lawrence used to do to me, um, and I was in labor, and they didn't really believe that. I was in labor and that I was having contractions. Um, I remember that one of the guards, like she had just had a baby and she finally realized that I was like really in labor. She was like, oh my God, her contractions are really close. Um, and before that I had gone into premature labor twice um, with her and I had to be rushed to the hospital twice. So that was um, when I first went into jail, I had gone into premature labor. Um, they had me on something called breathing that used to make me sleep like 22 hours a day so I was really out of it. They said it was to stop um, premature labor from happening. Um, so that night they took me to the hospital. Um, I remember that I got there, um, I didn't have an epidural, um, my doctor didn't want to give me an episiotomy because he knew that um, the conditions that were prison were very barbaric, so he didn't want to give me um, an episiotomy, so he said he was going to try not to. Um, I remember that my dad was like holding my hand and telling me I was going to be okay. Um, I had back labor, it was really bad. Um, they got me to the hospital so late that they couldn't give me anything for pain, anything like that. So I just did labor basically like the 1800s. Um, I just did it with no pain medication or anything. Um, I remember that I, the back labor was really bad. I was vomiting. Um, it was in my hair. It was all down my gown. Like it was on all over the place. Um, I remember it was like really painful. And then like I kept pushing. And um, I remember that um, she was born and that I kind of panicked when they told me that she was a girl. I got really scared because of Lawrence and the way he was. Um, I don't know, for some reason, I thought I was having a boy, but when, when she was a girl, I started to really panic. Like, I remember my heart beating really fast, and I really scared. Um, I remember that they um, gave her to me, and I remember that um, I was looking at her, and I remember that um, her 
like when she opened her eyes, they were like a gray blue color. They were very dark, dark, dark. Like nobody could tell what color her eyes were. Um, they kept looking at her eyes. No one could tell what color her eyes were. Like everybody kept trying to see. They're like, I don't even know what color that is. And I had to remember. I remember that um, she had hiccups um, for a long time. I remember she had hiccups for like two hours. Um, and I remember that I was just really panicked that she was a clown. I was really scared. Um, I remember that um, my mom was holding her. Then I remember that my dad was holding her. Um, I remember that um, they came and took her um, and put her in a little, I don't even know what it was, a little, like a little plastic, um, I don't even know what it was, a little plastic, it was on a wheel, like a little plastic. Like a bassinet? Um, yeah, they said that um, they... They said that um, they were going to take her and put her in the nursery. And then um, I remember that after that, that um, my mom was holding her um, when they brought her back. And I remember that um, her and my dad were kind of panicking because there were like all kinds of reporters at the hospital like trying to, and I remember they were talking about how are they gonna get her out of there without, um, they didn't know how they were gonna get her out of there without, they didn't want any photographs of her or anything and they were talking about how they were gonna get her out of there without being seen. Um, they literally, I remember that um, they told me that I had to eat something I remember trying to eat something and I remember I was looking at my mom holding her and I I just like had this horrible feeling that I had to that that he cut that Lawrence couldn't get out. I, I just knew that he couldn't get out, that he had to be locked up. And I kept thinking about like what's gonna happen if he tries to you know, go near her or get custody or something like that. And um, I knew that, I just knew that he was gonna try to do something to her. And I kept thinking about like, when I was pregnant, that he punched me in my stomach on August 8th. Um, and I just kept thinking about like, all the things that he was capable of, all the things that I knew, that he was so violent and like, demented and like, sexually deviant and just I just knew that it was going to be really bad if he any if he ever went near her so that's when I told my mom that I had the 29 question and I was scared when I told her and I was really scared after I said it and but I, I had to say it I had to say it because I just knew that, like, the only chance that, that she would have was without him. And I knew that the only chance she would have was with my parents. So, 
I huh. just didn't, I knew that she couldn't go through what I went through. So. How long did you get to stay in the hospital with your daughter? Um, not even, I don't think it was even a day. Um, they called and said they wanted me back. And I remember when I stood up, um, when, when I tried to get out of bed, they, they kept trying to, they kept calling there saying she can't come back there. Like she bleeding so bad. They were like, you cannot send her back there. Um, I remember like trying to get out of bed and the nurses helped me stand up. I remember like feeling all of my organs like dropping back down into place. I remember like I panicked because I didn't know that that happened after you had a baby. Um, I remember all the blood like just gushing all over the floor. I remember they they took me in the bathroom and tried to like clean me up and everything. They put me in the shower. They kept telling them she's not ready to go back. Please don't make her go back. They were like she like what do you like she's gonna bleed or everything. They were like you, you just can't take her back. And I remember they made me go back anyway. I remember that um, I couldn't, I could barely walk. I remember that um, one of the uh, guys at the prison, um, his name was Baker. I remember that he took pity on me. And I remember that um, he put me in a wheelchair and he literally healed me up because they were going to make me walk the whole way through the prison back up to my and I remember that this guy that he literally got me a wheelchair, put me in a wheelchair, and I never forgot his name. He he wheeled me up to my unit, and he wheeled me the whole way back to my cell. I'll, I'll never forget that he did that. Um, he like literally like saved me because there's no way I could walk. I I just couldn't do it. Um, and I remember that um. They wouldn't let me um, feed her. Um, they said that I couldn't like breastfeed, so I couldn't do that. I remember like my chest swelling up so bad. I was in so much pain, like it was really heavy. Um, I couldn't like I remember I was having a hard time breathing. I was laying in bed. I was in I was in such bad shape. Like I would literally get up and go to and from the shower twice a day. Um, I was just bleeding, 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 bleeding for weeks. It was just so bad. Um, I remember that um, after I had her, that um, I didn't eat for a long time for like weeks. And the uh, prison started noticing they literally, um, I got down a really skinny, like, I hate to say this, but I was probably below 90 pounds. I was very, very thin. I wasn't eating. Um, they told me if I didn't start eating that um, they were literally, they told me they were going to put in a chest tube. Um, they literally would sit my tray on my in my slot in my door and um i literally was taking it and flushing the food um i didn't want it and they told me that they were going to start watching me eat and if i didn't eat that that 
they were going to put me down in medical and that they were going to force feed me. So I started, um, like, eating a little bit at a time. Like, I started picking out my food, and I would just eat, like, just enough, like, to live, to, to make them happy, just enough to, like, survive. And um, then they started, like, leaving me alone. After they saw I was, like, eating all of it, they started leaving me alone. Then, um, I remember my dad kept bringing um, my daughter to see me in the visit, so I would sit down there and hold her, but I wasn't allowed to, I wasn't allowed to, like, feed her. Um, so I remember that, um, yeah. I remember that I had to sign papers to give my parents, like, permanent custody. Um, I remember that. I remember trying to think, um... Was Lawrence made aware that she was born? And did he ever sign away parental rights to her or or how did how did that work? Well, this was really weird. He had never like expressed any interest in her and he told me in a letter that I had gotten before she was born, he said that and they have this and others. He said, I don't want to upset you, but me and my parents are going to fight for custody. And I was <gasps> thinking, fight for custody? Like, they wanted me to have an abortion. He punched me in my stomach. Why would they want to fight for custody? Like, it, and I felt like it was a threat when he said it, I, but I know it was. It was a threat. And... They had never, they didn't want me to have the baby. They had shown no interest at all. And then for him to say that we're going to fight for custody, like he basically was telling me that I'm going to do the thing that would terrify you the most. Right. And that's why I knew I just couldn't. Um, then I'm trying to think, we actually went to court because they tried to we actually took him to court and we uh paid a family attorney named Yola Ma. We paid her to have his parental rights terminated. Um we used all the doctor bills from when he beat me, hospital bills from when he beat me. We used um the police report from August eighth. He punched me in my stomach when I was pregnant. Um, we used the photographs the police took. We had witnesses come and testify. Um, and we literally got his parental rights terminated. Um, they did grant um, supervised visitation to his parents, but my parents were allowed to be there, and they they were supervised visits only because of what Lawrence had done. Um, the judge in that case made the decision to terminate um, Lawrence's parental rights, and he claimed to them um, they were terminated. Um, they said that he was a danger to her in utero. He's still a danger to her. Um, so his parental rights were terminated, and from what I understand, when they gave him parole after 14 years, it was also a condition of his parole that he was never to go near her. Um, they said that he was to stay away from her. 
concerned that if he went near her, it would be a violation of his parole. From what I understand, that was said to him. Um, Good. People have been... Good. Did his... We were very fortunate that people basically stood up and recognized the, the danger and that, you know, that something had to be done. Yeah, for sure. Did his parents ever use, like, do have any visitation? Like, the supervised visits that they were granted, did they ever use those? Did they ever what? Did they ever get, the, like, have visitation with, with your daughter that they were granted? Um, they, his parents, they got supervised, um, visits, supervised visits, but... They, my parents, the stipulation was that my parents had to be there um, when they would see her. And uh, my parents were there the entire time, and it only happened a few times. And then they completely um, broke off contact after um, Lodge's parental rights were terminated. They completely broke off contact. They never tried to see her again. Um, they never tried to see my daughter again. They completely broke off contact. Um, they never tried to stay in touch with her. It was basically like um, they didn't win the war, so they just dropped it. Okay, I just have one more question about her. Is she amazing? Is she okay? Yeah, she is. <laughs> Okay. Okay. And that's all I want to say about her. Cause I don't want, we don't want to pull her into this at all. You don't, we don't like, that's all we want to say about that. Now, moving on to, to the actual bench trial, how long was the bench trial? And there's, there's a lot of bullshit that happened in this, right? Yes. Yes. So walk, um, walk me through this. It was about, I think it was about nine days. Um, I'm pretty sure it was about nine days. Um, we were missing 37 items that Jack Knuff kept from us. So, but they still, even so and still, they still had absolutely no evidence against me. Like, absolutely nothing. They had not one iota of anything. Um... They literally, the only thing they kept saying was that, um, they literally kept saying that we had had, um, altercations and disagreements. That's all they kept saying. Um, literally, they literally, uh, tried to keep it out of the trial that, uh, Lawrence had raped Lori. They completely tried to keep that out. Um, my lawyer, um, got um Lawrence to admit on the stand he kept Lawrence kept denying that he was beating me um the whole time we were together he kept saying that he wasn't and then my lawyer said well was this time at nine o'clock or eleven o'clock and Lawrence like exploded on the stand and he said I don't look at a clock when I hit her and it just like he like laughed you have one minute left and everybody, like, yeah, everybody was like, Ooh. like, he, he totally lost his cool. And I told Roy, I said, if you challenge him in any way, he's going to explode. And all he said was, 
was just at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock, and he exploded just because he challenged him on a time. Um, he literally yelled out in the courtroom, I don't look at a clock when I hit her. Um, so he got him to admit to that. Um, there was also um, Jack Kness also called um, the expert that uh, my lawyer had hired, and he was basically like intimidating and tampering with him. Um, the judge knew it, and he still allowed it. He did nothing about it. He didn't take any kind of remedial measures. Um, there were no formal sanctions filed. Thank you for using. First, he was denying hitting me, and then I had already told Roy Shirk, I said, be careful, because if you, um, his temper is very combustible, and I said, if you question him, he's going to explode on you, and he told me he wasn't worried about it, that he was going after him. And um, he simply questioned him on two different times because at first Lawrence was trying to deny it. And he just like lashed out and said, I don't look at a clock when I hit her. And my lawyer said to him, I bet you don't. So <laughs> he got him to admit it right there that he had been abusing me. Um, he caught him and my lawyer caught in so many lies. Um, he started questioning him about the 29 questions. Um, he said that um, the document was not authentic, that it had been altered. Um, and my lawyer had the document um, sent to the state police lab, and the state police lab said that it was completely genuine and authentic and that it had not been tampered with at all. Um, they did, I think, that guy's name was um, Jen Cavage. Um, they did handwriting analysis on it. They tested the paper for graphite. Um, they did all kinds of tests on the paper. Um, they said it was 100% authentic. Um, and then Judge Spangle decided that even though that it was completely a, it was Lawrence's murder confession, um, Spangle decided that it was of no consequence to the fact finder. And the judge had appointed himself as fact finder, so he literally gave it no consideration whatsoever. Um, he just decided to dismiss it, even though the state police said it was authentic. Um, there were, uh, the other thing, right after that, um, Jack Neff called our defense witness, um, it was Dora Mahalikis, and he literally called him on the telephone which is highly illegal. Um, it's against the rules of professional conduct. Um, if you are opposing counsel, you are not allowed to contact a defense witness in ex parte communication. You're not allowed to do that. Um, he called the witness. He told him, he told Isidore Mahalikas, um, Jack Neff said, I'm very unhappy with you. He, he basically tampered with the witness. He intimidated him. Um, he told him that it was going to affect his work for the prosecution in the future. He basically told Dr. Mahalikis that if he gave testimony that was favorable to the defense, that it was going to affect his career. How do you know that? How do you, how do you know that that happened? Um, my attorney, Roy Shirk, he found out about it, and uh, he said it in court. Uh, he said it to the judge. And Kness admitted 
that he had called Dr. Mahalakis and said these things to him. And Judge Stengel didn't put any kind of, you know, sanctions on the prosecution or anything like that. Um, he didn't fine him. He didn't call a mistrial. He didn't do anything. He basically just dismissed it. And um, when Dr. Mahalakis got on the stand, he had completely changed his testimony. Um, it was not favorable to us at all. It had completely morphed into something else. Um, after Jack Kinnett spoke to him. And was that doctor, um, was that doctor originally going to be called as your witness or the state's witness? No, um, Dr. Mahalakis was originally our defense expert witness. Okay. And the prosecution tampered with him. They intimidated him. They basically threatened his professional career. They said it was going to affect his work with the prosecution in the future because I guess typically Dr. Mahalakis worked for the prosecution. He was a prosecution witness. And they were very angry that he was testifying for the defense in my case. So instead of allowing him to go on the stand and uh, just give his opinion based on the evidence, Jack Kinnett called him at night and basically, you know, he intimidated him into changing his testimony. And when Roy Shirk put Dr. Mahalakis on the stand, he was stunned by what Dr. Mahalakis said. It was not at all what he had uh, written down and given to my attorney as his expert analysis. It had completely changed after um, Jack Neffin terminated him. Do you remember, do you remember off the, how did his testimony change? Like, what was he going to say and what did he say on the stand? Um, he had originally told my attorney that he said because of the um, damage to the bones and everything, um, the damage that was done to Lori during the murder, um, he said that I guess the knife broke and it must have got stuck in a bone. And he said that it would be physically, his original expert opinion was that it would have been impossible and unlikely for a small woman, a woman with small stature, to have the strength to um, basically embed that in a bone and then have the strength to pull it back out. And he said that the only person that would have the physique to do that is somebody else of Lawrence's size was somebody that was six foot two and two hundred and forty pounds. Um, that was going to be his original testimony that it was very it was impossible and highly unlikely that a woman could have had the strength to do that. He said it would have had to been somebody very, very strong that did that. Um, because he had somehow determined that that's what had to have um, broken the knife but it had to have gotten stuck in a bone. And when he went into trial, he said that basically that that he had never said that, even though Worship had it in writing. Um, he said that he never gave the testimony that he was going to give. He said that um, he basically like glossed over it, and that was the linchpin of our case. That's why Worship wanted him because Dr. Mahalakis said there's 
no way that a car that size could have done this. Like, it would have had to been a full-grown man that was very powerful and very strong. And that has only completely changed just with that phone call from Jack Smith. Yeah. <clears throat> so what... What evidence you said you said before that there were did you say twenty six or thirty seven different things that were not presented or that was lost that didn't make it into your bench trial as evidence that would have supported your version of the story? Can you tell me what got lost, what didn't make it in, and what evidence was presented against you that got this conviction? Um. Okay, uh, one thing um, was that the whole river search, uh, the river search videotape that had disappeared, it had never been turned over to the defense. Um, it was actually also tampered with and altered. Um, they had tampered with a the videotape, they had erased a large part of it, um, and then they had given uh, Roy Shirk a, a doctored tape. And the tape completely erased any mention of the bloodhound. Um, we never knew that Clementine and the bloodhound existed. We never knew that she had been uh, scented with Tabitha's scent. Uh, we never knew about her discovery that she had found uh, the rope and other evidence um, under the ice. Um, her owner, Alan Means, was never debriefed. Um, and the other thing that was shocking that came out shortly thereafter, Robert Reed wrote a police report saying that nothing was found at the river search because they wanted to just dispose of everything that was there, the bloodhound, everything, because it would have directly helped me. Um, the same thing with the, the red trash bag with his bloody high top sneakers in it. Um, and... Shortly thereafter, it came out that Robert Reed, the man or the police officer that had written the police report to dispose of all of this evidence, he was charged with and later convicted of multiple counts of child molestation. <gasps> so he became a convicted child molester and wound up going to prison for a very long time. Um, after that, also, uh, the police reports that stated... Um, they had statements from Lori that wanted to break her. Uh, they had police report that had statements from her mother saying the same thing. And there was also a statement from her father saying the same thing. Those three uh, police reports disappeared. Um, then there was also um, the fact that they had, uh, there was another witness, um, Cora Thomas, that they had, um, tampered with um trying to think it was savage um detective savage she actually had a police report on her she was being charged with um faking her own kidnapping and she was looking at prison time and a phone and she was looking at a criminal record and he literally told her that he would dispose of her kidnapping charge, her time in prison, and uh, her felony record and everything that she was looking at um, in exchange for her testimony. And only then did she change her statement to the police and say something completely 
horrible that she had never said before. She literally said that, um, she said that, you know, one minute left, she said that, um, Lisa Lambert said that she was going to, um, cut Lori Sheriff's throat. And that statement only came after Savage had been in the Coltrane prison. Um, he, she was looking at a felony record. She was 17 years old. She was looking at a hefty fine for making kidnapping. Um, and also he completely disposed of that. We never knew about the fake kidnapping. Um, we never knew that basically the federal court called it, um, quid pro quo. Basically that it was a favor for a figure. He wanted her to change her testimony. And he also got her father to change his testimony. And he basically used the same thing to blackmail her father, saying, you either want your daughter to go to prison, or you want your daughter to be a convicted felon, and you want your daughter to have a criminal record. And pay Thank you for using security. Former an incarcerated individual at Massachusetts Department of Corrections. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. If you believe this should be a private call, please hang up and follow facility instructions to register this number as a private number. To accept charges and consent to this recorded call, press 1. Thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. So, Lisa, I, I have a question if you can explain something to me here real quick. In Wyoming, I know Wyoming law really, really well, and I know like how, how protocol goes and policy and procedure for law enforcement. But can you explain to me, if you know, who who collects evidence, who is in charge of evidence, how does the chain of command work, and what are the consequences, if there are any, of evidence going missing and reports going missing? What, is, what happens in Pennsylvania when that happens, if you know? Um, basically... Um, this is one thing I do know, um, evidence is to immediately be put into an evidence bag. It is to be properly locked in. It is to be tagged. Um, it is to immediately be secured in the evidence room. Um, and if it is signed out at any point in time, it is to be officially signed out, logged out, um, the person taking the evidence for any reason. Um, they are supposed to give their batch number, their official information. Um, if any time the tape is broken on the evidence, um, there is to be a report written about it any time the evidence is examined. Um, there is to be a report written about it. There is to, it is to be locked. Um, the tape is to be resealed and it is to be initialed by the person that broke the original tape and resealed it. And the problem is in Pennsylvania, things just disappear. And there are no professional consequences for any of this stuff going on. Uh, the only consequences are for people that are arrested and people that are incarcerated. Uh, they just, prosecutors, police, they just put their hands up in the air and say, oh, well, we don't know what happened to it. And then people wind up getting wrongfully convicted, their appeals aren't successful. It's just, it seems that there's no professional accountability. Okay, who... Who who took the evidence? Who responded and took collected the evidence in your case specifically? Is it a local PD? Is it state police? Is it who who did that? 
Who is in charge of this case? It was the East Lampeter Township Police Department. Uh, uh, Detective Savage was also involved. Um, Raymond Folk was also involved. Um, the other thing is because, uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but um, Lori lived right behind the Pennsylvania State Police barracks. Um, so from what I understand, they were definitely involved because I know that uh, they had a lot to do with examining a lot of um, evidence. I know that they did a lot of the handwriting analysis. I know that I was arrested by a state police trooper. Um, he was not East Lane Peter Township Police, um, but he did hand me over to them. He cuffed me. He told me I was under arrest, and then he handed me over to them. Um, there, as far as I know, there were multiple people. Everybody just had their hands in it. Who, which agency was it, which agency was it that read you your Miranda rights? Um, that was the East Lampier Township Police Department. Okay. So it wasn't read for a while. Then. So when, when, when did they read you your Miranda rights? Like, in, like at the bowling alley or at the station? No. No, it was at the station, and it was after quite some time after I'd already been talking to them. Um, they also violated their six-hour rule. They literally had me in there questioning me from, I think, like 10, 11 o'clock at night until well after daylight the next day. Um, I didn't have anything to eat or drink during that whole time. Um, I was... I was in a, like in a in an office. There was a light in my face. I hadn't eaten in like over twenty four hours. I was like famished. I was I was very out of it. I just remember, um, and I remember them not reading me my rights for a very long time. Like it was not right away. It was after um, they had been talking to me for hours. Was the interview with you? Was it recorded? Um, um, what, no, what they did was they actually, they actually, uh, wrote stuff down and then, um, I think it was Raymond Salt wrote stuff down and then he gave me a pen and had me sign across the page. It was really bizarre. Like, it wasn't videotaped. It wasn't audio taped, anything like that. Um, then I remember at some point, um, my lawyer had me, you know, write out what happened that day, but that was long after it wasn't um, at the police station. At any point, did you say that you wanted a lawyer? Um, my dad called there. My, I know my father called there and said that I was a teenager and he wanted me to have a lawyer brought in immediately. And they never told me that he called there. I didn't know anything about it. Um, he kept calling and calling and calling. Um, they never told me. I didn't know anything about it. Um, 
And I don't think I said, I don't know if I said anything about a lawyer. Um, the thing I knew was that I knew, and this is from when Lawrence had been in trouble in the past, um, his lawyer, Doug Cody, had always told me to keep my mouth shut about anything he did until I spoke to him. So I already knew like, not to say anything about him to anybody. And so for the entire interview, the all night into the early morning, you didn't have an attorney that entire time? No. Wow. Okay. And the judge, was the judge in your bench trial, was he made aware that there was evidence that that went missing? Did law enforcement say that on the record where they asked, hey, where's such and such an item? And then, and what was their response? Um, what happened was, um, because Kinesh kept that from, he kept all of that from the court, we had no idea it even existed. Like, we found out, um, when I went to federal court that they found an earring back in, uh, Lori's hair during her autopsy. They, the, um, coroner gave the earring back to Detective Savage to be tested for blood and to be shared in the evidence run, and it disappeared. The savage was the person it was given it to. Um, it just vanished. And they were never they were never questioned under oath about what the hell happened to this, or um, they were in federal court. Uh, savage just put his hands up and said, "I don't know what happened to it." Um, the coroner was very clear that he had given it to him and he just put his hands up and said, I don't know. That's, that's what they used to do on Pennsylvania. They would just say, I don't know. And that was okay because we had to have a death penalty phase after that. And they actually, um, had to call people in for character witnesses for me to save my life. Um, they literally... Uh, there was a death penalty phase, and they had to, like, the defense had to demonstrate mitigating factors why I should not be put to death. Okay. And they, um, one thing that I would not allow, though, uh, my lawyer wanted me to, um, like, he wanted to try to humanize me and I as a judge, so he wanted, uh, like, the baby to be brought in. And for me to hold the baby in front of the judge so that he could see me. And I said, absolutely not, because, um, I, I don't know. I felt like that was like using her to save my life and I didn't want to do it. And the other thing was that, uh, there were a lot of reporters there with cameras and I didn't want anyone to get a picture of her and I didn't want anyone to see her and I just didn't want. I don't know. I just didn't want to bring her like into that ugliness. And my lawyer kept telling me that he was like, but not even to save your life. And I said, no, I didn't want her in, in that ugliness in there. Yeah. So I, I just said I, I wasn't going to do it. And then, um, he called a whole bunch of people that knew me and they like testified on my behalf. Like, about my character and things that they remembered from my life and things. 
And then um, the judge, I think because he was Catholic, I think that's the only reason he didn't sentence me to death, because he was Catholic. Um, he literally said that he was sentencing me to life in prison. And that was basically the end of it. Okay. And you have, you have, you're, you're Native American, correct? Yes, my mom is Native American. She's Cherokee. Okay. So did the, did the tribal council get involved at all in your case? Um, no, we haven't, we haven't reached out to anybody in that regard just because, um, I don't know, I kind of feel, I don't know, I kind of feel, I don't know, I feel like bad about dragging certain things into, I don't know, I just kind of feel like the Native American people, they've been through enough. Um, like, my mom doesn't ask them for land, she doesn't ask them for money or anything like that. Um, we haven't, like reached out to them or asked or anything like that. Okay. Okay. So who, who all was allowed in the courtroom during your bench trial? You just said that the press was there. Your family was allowed there, but was it packed or was it, what was, what was the environment like during that? Oh, it was, uh, all of the seats were packed and then there was standing room only on top of that. It was, it was, crazy. It was packed. It was, it was just, it was packed. Okay. So you get sentenced and then again, I don't know how it works in Pennsylvania. I'm assuming that you were in a county jail before your sentencing and then you go to prison. Is that to the prison facility? Is that correct? Um, they actually, what happened was they actually moved me uh, to another prison. I can't remember. It was a county. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but I was there for maybe like five weeks. And Kenneth, again, um, Jack Kenneth, he was prosecuting Tabby. So he called me there with my lawyer, Roy Shirt. And he told me that he wanted me to change my story and say what he wanted me to say. And he said, if you do this, I'll see what I can do about helping you. And I told him that I wasn't changing my story. I said, I'm not like going to say what you want me to say. Um, he said that he had like a, a prosecution theory and that he wanted me to um, go with that and he wanted me to get on the stand and I wound up not doing it because he wanted me to literally like memorize what he wanted me to say and then he said then I'll take into consideration that you helped us and I told Lord Shucks that absolutely not I'm not doing that and um then they I wound up going back to um they took me back after like five weeks to where I was um at um, the Lancaster County Prison. Okay, do you know why you got moved? Uh, yeah, because um, Kenneth wanted me, oh, that was the other thing I completely forgot. They gave her 
uh, Tabby, they gave her a change of venue. Mm-hmm. I completely forgot about that. They gave her a change of venue. And because she had a change of venue, they had to move me to, so that I would be local in order for them to negotiate. And uh, I told them after Kanef kept talking to me with Lori Shirk, and I told him I wasn't going to cooperate with him. I said, I'm not interested in any negotiations. I'm not changing anything. I'm not saying what you want me to say. And uh, they wound up taking me back after that because I would not cooperate with them. Did you try to get a change of venue for your case? I can't hear you. What? Did you try to get a change of venue for your trial? Oh, yes. I tried in, Warshark tried in uh, 92, and he uh, also, my lawyers tried again in 98, and every single time, Bengal refused to give me a change of venue. He would not do it. See, and that makes no sense, because Tabby got it because of all the publicity and the media and everything, so why... Why wouldn't they give that to you? That makes right. no sense. Right. <laughs> Did he provide a reason or he just, just said denied? Um, he denied it. He said that that he didn't think that the media had been um, appropriate or overbearing or biased or gruesome or anything. He said that he felt that the media coverage had been fair. It was absolutely ludicrous the reasoning that he used. My lawyer could not believe it. Yeah, especially... Um, Anything that he didn't like, he just decided was of no consequence to him. And he he just did whatever he wanted to do. Okay, so you... In 98, when I had my post-conviction relief hearing in front of him, after I'd been sent back to prison, um, he literally denied a change of venue again, and then he issued a gag order that my lawyers and that I could not speak to the media, none of us could, but it was only a partial gag order. The prosecutor, um, the, the victim's family, everybody else could talk to the media that we could not talk to the media. So he effectively silenced us with that gag order. And he said if I violated it or they violated it, that we would have heavy consequences. So you have one minute left. How long did you, after, after all of that, how long were you in that county jail when you came back, when Tabitha came, went to trial, how long were you in that jail before you were moved? Um, they moved me um, right after my birthday. I think they moved me the end of September, beginning of October of 92. Hey, there's one more thing I want to ask you about the about the federal trial. And I read the transcripts from the federal trial but tell everybody about the 59 questions. Oh, the 29 questions? No, the 57 or 59 times that that officer pled the fifth. 
instructed to do that by a sergeant or his chief or something, or if he just did that just solely on his own? Um, I believe that his attorney told him because he was already under indictment for child molestation. So I believe that his attorney told him that there was a there was a huge um, investigation going on. I know that um, they had, well, Val had already ordered a huge investigation going on into uh, criminal conduct involving what was done with the evidence and everything in my case. And I think he was afraid of getting further charges um, or like incriminating himself. Um, Judge Dalzell, he caught the police in so much perjury. Um, literally, like, Detective Barley was on the stand, and uh, Tina Rainbow and Peter Greenberg, um, they were married, and they were my attorneys. They literally had the videotape them from the river search that was undoctored. They put it in a VCR, and they held the remote control behind their back, and they would put them on the stand and ask them a question, and they would say no, and they would press play on the videotape with the remote control, and the uh, officer would whirl to see the TV screen showing him doing something that he just did not doing. Um, she was, Tina and Peter were very, very smart about how they did that. They asked the questions first, and they said, okay, let's go to the evidence, and they would click play. And literally, they got them in multiple counts of perjury. Um, again and again and again, uh, Detective Barley denied doing things. We had videotape of him doing it. Detective Savage denied doing things. We had videotape of him doing it. Um, they denied being on the audio tape statement from my trial of Lawrence Young and the Scott Witness. They denied shutting off the tape. Tina and Peter um, showed in federal court that they had been present in the background. Their voices were on the audio tape. They had shut off the tape. Um, they just caught them in unprecedented perjury. It was unbelievable. Um, then they decided to release me, and this was right in the middle of the federal trial. Um, Hazel Shell, Lori's mother, she told the judge that she needed to speak to him, and we went back into chambers, and she told the judge that she was horrified to admit this, but she remembered seeing Lawrence um, in the car shove my head down that morning 
she said they did drive by me and I did see them. And um, like Madden Stalker, who was the prosecutor at my federal trial with Don Totero, who was um, second chair prosecutor, they literally, Madden Stalker was so horrified. He said, I don't even know what to say, Your Honor. And Judge Darvell said, well, I think that at this point we need to have Ms. Lambert released and she can show up for court in the morning. Um, the prosecutor, Matt and Walker, he completely agreed to my release with no conditions. Um, my attorney said, we're married, so we'll take her home with us for the night. Um, I was released in the middle of the federal trial because um, Hazel showed she, she made this admission that she had really seen this. And which was even more horrible, she said that she had told Detective Savage this on the morning of the murder, and she had repeatedly told him after the murder that she had seen Lawrence push my head down and that she knew that he was in a condominium complex and she knew that he was there and he had something to do with it. And Detective Savage told her not to dwell on it. So he had also tampered with Hazel Show's testimony and she never said that because he, she never said that at my original trial. And she never said it because he kept telling her not to dwell on it. He was like literally tampering with her um, testimony because he didn't want that coming into court. Um, the other thing Savage did too, um, there was a neighbor, Kathleen Bryan, in the condominium complex. She had seen the car. She had seen the license plate and she had gotten several numbers on the license plate right and she had repeatedly written letters to um jack Kniff, to detective savage to barley she said listen i saw that car i saw the license plate i know he was up in the complex the condominium complex they withheld her letters from us they never gave her our letters we didn't know anything about her um they withheld the information that Hazel Show had seen Lawrence up in the complex, that she had seen him shove my head down. Um, and based on that fact alone, that uh, Hazel Show told Judge Dolzell that Savage had literally tampered with her memory and her testimony. She said, I, re I repeatedly remember telling him this, and he kept telling me to not dwell on it. Um, they decided to release me in the middle of the federal trial so I went home with um, Peter and Tina, and um, my dad was there with my mom, and then I just had to show up for court the next morning, and I went back to court in a suit and high heels, like a normal person, um, and I showed up for court for several days, and then it was the weekend, and then uh, we didn't have court for two days, and then um, I went back to court, and... Um, Judge Stavell asked me to stand up and he said that he was finding me actually innocent. And I remember that um, my knees buckled and I had to like use the table to hold myself up. And um, I remember I started crying. Uh, he said he was finding me actually innocent. Um, he said that he was issuing his opinion. Um, he read his entire opinion into the record. I mean the entire opinion and it was like 42 pages of microscript. Um, he read it into the record and um, he like officially released me. I remember he took me, uh, I was released and his opinion was read in a ceremonial courtroom. 
he said because it, he said that he was, um, that this was the first time that something like this had ever happened. And he said that he wanted it in a ceremonial courtroom because he said it's not often that he gets to write such a terrible injustice. And uh, he wanted it to be like a day for me to remember. So he, that's where he had me released. And um, I remember that I was like, I don't know, I was, was shell-shocked. And um, Peter and Tina, they immediately, um, they got me a job. Um, it was um, working in medical malpractice litigation in the uh, King of Prussia. Um, there were all kinds of people like offering me jobs. I remember that I didn't have like, I didn't have a driver's license. I didn't have ID um, to get my social security card. I had to take newspaper articles from the trial and from my acquittal with my photograph on it to the social security office. And I said, I know this is very unorthodox, but I was just released and acquitted and I don't have identification and I'm trying to reacclimate myself into society. And they took pity on me and they gave me my security card. Um, they let me use that as identification. Um, then I wrote a letter with, I used the same article um, to Fort Dix in New Jersey so that I could get my birth certificate. Um, and I just had to restart my life like that. Like I just, had bits and pieces of things to do. Um, I remember that when I uh, signed my um, application for the medical malpractice litigation job, that they ran my name. I explained it on my situation, and they ran my name into the NCIC, which is the National Crime Information Computer. I came up that I had been completely acquitted, um, that I was found not guilty. And um, literally within a day or two of me being released, I had no criminal record. Um, somehow, Judge Dalzell and the federal marshals, they had completely cleared my criminal record for me. Um, and that was one of the main things that I had been worried about. I didn't know, like, how am I going to take care of my daughter? I'm not going to be able to get a job. Like, what am I going to do? But um, literally, they had my criminal record right within a day or two. It was just unbelievable. Tell me, tell me in Pennsylvania, what is the process of filing a complaint against a police department for for what they did, losing the losing the evidence, tampering with witnesses, et cetera, all of the, everything that that's documented that they did? Did you file a complaint? Who do you go to? What? How does that work in Pennsylvania? Um, Roy Shirk knew that something was wrong. He just had a sense in his gut, but he didn't have proof of all the things that Smith did. But he kept telling my parents, he was like, something is wrong here. He was like, this doesn't make any sense. There's nothing on her. He said, I don't understand this. I, he was, he was, Horrified, like I'll never forget the look on his face when I got convicted that day. He didn't expect it. Um, and my parents, they hired Joe Epstein. Um, he also knew something was wrong. He said something's not right about this, but my appeal got rejected. Um, 
the only way for me to file any kind of complaint, I literally, literally wrote in ink with my own hand in my habeas corpus petition. And I said that there were things in evidence that were missing. There were witnesses that were tampered with. Um, I literally wrote this to the federal court, and that was the only way to make a complaint to get my grievances heard. Um, because we didn't have proof. We had a horrible sense of something sinister, but we didn't have proof. And the only way to get that proof was to go after them with federal discovery, because federal discovery is more consuming, it's more massive. Uh, once the federal marshals are involved, um, they don't really have any mercy for any kind of corruption. They're not about that, um, especially at a lower level. Um, they literally, literally, and they told, um, Judge Shawwell said, and he was a Republican conservative judge, he said, God help anybody that doesn't turn over something in this case. And he let it be known that he would send the marshals and he would have them arrested. And he said it on the record. He said, I will have, if they resist anything, I will send my marshals and arrest them. And that was the only way that we started getting discovery because people started panicking and they started turning things over. Like even um, Alan Means, he showed up at the courthouse of his own volition. Nobody subpoenaed him, nothing. We didn't even know he existed. He showed up and he um, stuck his hand out to my lawyers in the hallway and he said, I'm Alan Means, I own a bloodhound named Clementine. He said, I know something terrible about this case and I have to tell you what it is. And he handed them a videotape. Um, he said, I had my dog at the river. He said, I was never debriefed. I was never called to testify. He said, I don't understand what's going on. He was like, um, I know something terrible about this case. He said, I believe that they held it because it would have helped her. Um, and he told them everything he knew and he told them about the dog's discovery. He had actually made his own notes and everything because he was so unnerved that he hadn't been debriefed. He said he had never used Clementine to find any kind of evidence and not been debriefed and he knew something was wrong. He said for five years it had been eating at him and it, it was making him like very suspicious and he knew something was wrong. He said he used to think about it all the time and people were just coming out of the woodwork. Like people were calling my lawyers saying that they were intimidated, saying that um, they were made to say things on the witness stand that they didn't want to say. Um, they were taking back their testimony. They said, I didn't want to say that, but he made me say that, and this is why. And just, it was unbelievable, just people coming everywhere out of the woodwork with little tidbits and little pieces of the puzzle, and then everything just started to fit together. So if you... You were released in federal prison and then taken back and went through the appeal process again. So the appeal process should lead you back to federal prison. Why are you still in prison? That's a good question because I'm back in here because instead of entering the federal record into the record, into the official record of this case, 
um, Judge Lawrence Stengel took it upon himself to literally, he wanted to completely whitewash the federal trial. He wanted to invalidate it, which if you look up the federal trial and the case and all the evidence uncovered in that, it happened and it's written in stone. It can't be erased. Um, he thought by holding this hearing and appointing himself fact finder and issuing a gag order that he could literally make this all go away. Um, he distorted and tampered with everything. He purposely poisoned my appeals. So his opinion is the only thing that went forward. Nothing that was uncovered in federal court went forward after 1998. He completely made the federal record vanish. Can you not get back up to the federal court again with your appeals? Yes, but this is the problem because Stengel in 98 when I went back to prison because he poisoned the appeals process going forward. I only went forward on what Stengel decided I was going forward on, which meant he had erased all of the evidence uncovered in federal court. I didn't go forward on anything uncovered in federal court. I went through on what he decided. And then I went back to Superior Court of Pennsylvania, back to Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. Then another habeas corpus petition was filed. Then I went back to the Third Circuit Court. And by the time I was there, Judge Stengel was sitting as the chief judge. He appointed Judge Anita Brody to oversee the petition. And literally, he was in an authoritative position over her. So... She literally was reviewing and rubber stamping an opinion that her chief judge had written. Literally, the position she was in, he purposely put himself in a position over her that he only held for a little over a year. And I believe that he put himself in that position. I believe there was a lot of political manipulation. I believe they planned it. And they elevated him very swiftly to chief judge so that he would be in a position over the judge that was overseeing his opinion. So are um, you are you out? Are you out of appeals? You can't go forward anymore? Yes. Yes. I'm out of appeals, yes. So there's nothing that you can you do. Everything that happened everything that happened in federal court is moot. Well, Stengel made it appear that way. He literally he did everything he could to manipulate and fix the record, and he poisoned the record. And the frightening thing is, we live in America, and if you look in a federal supplement, that federal trial happened. The opinion still exists. It's completely valid. It's massive prosecutorial misconduct. And another judge, my original trial judge, just decided to hold a hearing and just completely wipe all of that away and make he made absolutely sure that my appeals went forward and poisoned information so because of that he, like he knew exactly what he was doing he completely obliterated the federal record thank you for using okay so you have been convicted of essentially first degree murder right and you yes. were sentenced 
to life with in prison without the possibility of parole. Did yeah. you, did you kill Lori's show? No. 